Amen. You may be seated. This morning we are going to begin reading from Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Um, So I would love for you to join me in your Bibles if you have them, um, so that you can follow along as we study the passage together. Um, Every year I intentionally try to link uh, our Christmas series, uh, in some way the text that we studied around Christmas time with the text that we study at Easter time. Uh, because Easter and Christmas are intrinsically linked. You, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have Christmas without Easter, and you cannot have Easter uh, without Christmas. Uh, and if you were with us in December, you'll know that we opened up our Bibles to the 8th and ninth chapters of Isaiah's prophecies, and we saw how long before um, Jesus ever even walked the earth, his birth and his majesty and his great light in the midst of thick darkness was foretold uh, by the prophet Isaiah. And so this Easter, we're going to take the next three weeks to walk through a four-part sermon series in Isaiah 53, uh, which tells of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you're a math expert in the room and wondering how on earth we're going to fit five sermons into three weeks. Um, don't be alarmed. Don't, don't be scared. Uh, we're actually going to incorporate our, good, incorporate our Good Friday service into this sermon series. Um, good Friday is going to serve as part three of four in this series. So if you want to understand the, the passage fully, if you want to experience the full weight of the passage of this chapter in Isaiah, I would strongly encourage you to make it a priority to attend on Good Friday. Um, just a reminder to you, that's not this Friday, it's the following Friday. It's April 15th at uh, 7 o'clock, and um, I look forward to seeing you there. Um, for this morning, let's go ahead and read from Isaiah, starting in chapter 52, verse 13, and then I'll read also the first three verses uh, into the next chapter as well. Uh, re- follow along as I read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, as we look to your holy and perfect word, would you permeate our ignorant minds and hardened hearts? Would your Spirit empower us with an ability beyond ourselves to understand how you have acted and how you have spoken into motion? what you have spoken into motion. And as a result, would we see you and would we know you? Would we approach our time uh, this morning with the humility necessary in studying Scripture, knowing that we bring nothing to the table 
and that the words which are verbally spoken this morning are in vain without the power of your hand to touch our minds and engrave our hearts. It's in Jesus' name, the glorious revealed one, that we pray. Amen. So on my last uh, birthday back in the fall, my kiddos gave me a uh, magnet board to hang in my office with the express purpose of hanging their artwork that they give me. Uh, There are many days where I'll come home um, from work and the first thing my kids want to do is show me their masterpieces, uh, which they love to create. And you can visually see on their faces the the joy and the pleasure uh, displayed on their faces when I offer them praise for their handiwork and their craftsmanship. I'll, I'll look at it and I'll say, this, this is just beautiful. I'm not really sure what it is. Um, but boy, did you do a fantastic job. So, so much joy, so much pleasure, so much satisfaction. And oftentimes they say, Daddy, can, can you put this one up? Can, can you hang this one up on, on your office? Can you display this on your board? And, and, and I gladly take it and I hang it up for the world to see uh, my children's work. We have this innate desire in us to, to create and to work because we are made in the image of a God who actively works and has and is creating a masterpiece. And God desires that the entire world would see the work of his mighty outstretched arm. God's greatest desire is that his glory and majesty would be known through his work and that the nations would see him and see him for how he has revealed himself and praise him for who he really is above all other things. And one of the primary ways that God accomplishes this is by sending representatives to proclaim his goodness to all nations. They serve as a herald of sorts, who blows a trumpet to get everyone's attention and then they tell of God's wonderful work. Let me tell you how amazing this God is. Let me tell you about the God of history. Let me tell you what God has done in history. Now in the context of the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel was to serve as God's representation because they had seen firsthand what God was capable of, what what he did. I feel the need to share a little bit of a helpful history lesson here um, in terms of the book of Isaiah. Uh, Israel had often rebelled against God. And at one point in history, the rebellion grew so severe that God actually raised up a nation, the nation of Babylon, to come in and destroy Israel as an act of punishment. In the book of Habakkuk, Uh, Babylon's army and its arsenal is actually described very vividly uh, with an analogy of animals. It's described as being swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves and eager to devour like eagles, soaring eagles. And uh, Habakkuk explains how Babylon is is like a fishing net, right? Like, Like a fishing net that drags through the water and swallows up fish into their midst and they're removed from the sea and pulled out, collected and pulled out. And this is exactly what happens, right? Babylon comes in, they 
conquer Israel. They destroy Jerusalem, lay it to waste, and then they exile all the Israelites. They remove the Israelites from their promised land and they send them away to to far uh, distant lands. Um, this, This whole event in history, once again, was an act of divine judgment by God in an attempt to open up the eyes of the Israelites to their own sin and the seriousness of their own sin in rebellion. However, through it all, God promises through the prophet Isaiah that not only will there be coming judgment, but there is also coming hope for them, right? That despite the judgment, there's going to be hope that they will return, that that God's kingdom will be restored and the capital of Jerusalem would be purified. Sure enough, the prophecy comes true. After Babylon overtakes Israel, God then raises up another nation by the name of Persia. And if Babylon was used by God as a form of divine judgment, Persia was used by God as a, as a form of divine restoration. Because the king of Persia, King Cyrus, a pagan king, no less, after overthrowing Babylon, issues a decree that all the Israelites uh, who are in exile can go back home. We're sending you back to Israel uh, and we're sending you back to your homeland and we're actually commissioning you to go and rebuild your temple. And believe it or not, uh, he, he gave them funding to do it. He sent them with gold and silver so that they could uh, go back and build this temple so that they could worship God once more. It's really quite remarkable how God orchestrated Persia in this event. Chapters 40 through 48 of Isaiah really explore this return of the Israelites to their land. And and God announces in those chapters, uh, once again, Isaiah 40 to 48, it's speaking from the vantage point of after the exile and after the return. And God announces in those chapters that the hope that Isaiah had prophesied prior to the exile had actually come to fruition. Um, and, And as a result, Israel is to respond to God by becoming his servant. Now, now a servant in this context, it's someone who carries out the will of another. Once again, a servant is a representation of somebody. It's a representation of a master who has sent a servant to accomplish a task. And Israel, having experienced God's judgment and then his subsequent mercy, Israel is really called to be his servant and to share with the nations who God truly is and what he has done, that he is the God of history, that, that, that he is not just one God and a myriad of gods, but he is the God, the one and only God who, who is over all of this and who raised up Babylon and then raised up Persia and delivered us back and that he is a great God. But what we discover in chapters 40 through 48 is that Israel is a lousy servant. Because instead of bearing witness to the nations of who God is, they actually complain about God. And they even accuse God of negligence. Because of the hardness of their hearts, the Babylonian exile didn't really bring repentance, but instead it caused them to lose faith in God. They began to believe this lie that perhaps God has ignored us that God didn't really care about us in our times of trouble. They went as far to say, perhaps God is not who he says he is. Maybe he's not all that powerful. Perhaps the Babylonian gods are greater than he is. 
Now, now, as I said earlier, if God's greatest desire is that his glory and majesty would be known through his work, that he would be known and revealed throughout all the nations, that all the nations would see him and praise him above all other things, then to say that God is not who he says he is, to say that God's revelation of himself is a lie, as the Israelites did in this situation, that is an outrageous offense to God. Understandably so, God disqualifies them to to be his servant. He he, he says, fine, you're not going to be my servant. However, God is still on this mission to make himself known, and and he's not going to let this bump in the road, this rebellious, hardened Israelite, stop him from his mission And so in chapters 49 through 55 in the book of Isaiah, we're introduced to this new figure. It's an individual figure who is only referenced as the servant of God. And we're told that this individual will fill the shoes of what Israel was supposed to do. This servant will complete what Israel failed to complete. This individual will go on to ultimately fulfill God's mission of revelation to the world. Now, there may have been some speculation at the time when Isaiah prophesied as to who this individual is, but hindsight being 2020, we know for fact that this servant is none other than Jesus Christ. This is how the New Testament authors actually interpreted this passage, Isaiah 53, on several occasions. We see it prominently in Acts chapter 8. If you're familiar with the story, you have the Ethiopian court official who's traveling from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia, and he's reading from Isaiah 53, which is the very text that we're going to journey through over the next few weeks. And as he's reading, there's a man named Philip who is walking down the road and by the Spirit's leading approaches the chariot. He goes to the court official and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the court official says, how can I unless somebody guides me? Or in other words, I need someone to make sense of this to me. I need someone to reveal this to me. So Philip climbs into the chariot and he sees the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53 and the Ethiopian says, who is this man? Is the prophet talking about himself or does he have somebody else in mind? And then Philip opened his mouth. And he says that the man that Isaiah writes about is Jesus. He shares the good news of Jesus and the Ethiopian then believed. It was revealed to him and he responded, he was baptized. So know that as we work through chapter 53, that what is said about the servant of God here is talking about Jesus. In fact, it's the most detailed passage that we have in the Old Testament uh, concerning Jesus' death and resurrection to the point that even if you're unfamiliar with how the New Testament interprets Isaiah 53, it's difficult not to see the parallels between this passage and the person of Jesus. In our country, in America, Jesus is widely known about. Maybe people don't believe in him. They reject him. But most people in America have heard of Jesus and are familiar with the basic 
um, themes around the story of Jesus. They're familiar with the story of Jesus. And this passage is so detailed that you could actually read it to a non-believer and ask them, who is this talking about? And they will most likely tell you, well, it's talking about Jesus. And then you can shock them when you explain that this text was written at least 600 years before Jesus was even born. Coincidence? Certainly not. And so we'll look at it together. Let's let's spend the rest of our time looking at what Isaiah has to say about Jesus, who he is, what he has done. Um, We start at the end of chapter 52. Verses 13 through 15 really belong in this poem, in the song. Uh, The chapter break is actually um, is a disservice to us because these verses really tee up uh, an overview of what's described um, in detail throughout Isaiah 53. Um, and it's important to note that starting in verse 13, we see a picture of exaltation. We see a picture of triumph. We see a picture of a champion. What does God say? God says, behold. Once again, this is a message of revelation. Behold, look, see, feast your eyes. All right, what are we looking at? We behold, we see his servant. We're looking at his servant and we witness his servant do three things in these opening verses. First, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, the word wisely in, used in this sense, it means that God's servant will act in a certain way, make decisions in a certain way that actually brings about victory, that brings about prosperity, that, that the decisions he makes are good decisions, and he knows exactly what to do, and he knows exactly what not to do, and he knows exactly what needs to happen in order to bring about success. If you're a football fan, you know that there are quarterbacks where you could say they have acted wisely. They, they play in such a way that they know when to throw the ball, and they know when not to throw the ball. They know who to throw the ball to, And they know who not to throw the ball to considering the situation and the circumstance of the game. And most of the time, the quarterbacks who are most wise win games. And those who win the most games most often win Super Bowls. And what happens when the quarterback wins Super Bowls? They are literally lifted up on a platform and presented with a trophy. And they are told, that they are the champion. We already know that they're a champion. Nobody needed to tell them that they're the champion, but for whatever reason, we take the formality to lift them up, elevate them on a platform, and tell them, you are the champion. You have won. Here is a trophy. Good for you. Pat on the back. The same is true even more so of the servant of God. That's the second thing that we behold, that we see. First, he acts wisely. He acts in accordance where he brings about victory. And and second, as a result of acting wisely and bringing victory, he shall be high and lifted up. He is elevated to a position of great prominence, to a place of, of honor. And third, we see that he is exalted, that he has declared the victor and he is praised for it. There is no question here that the servant of God has won. Now, I mentioned before that this is a song of victory, but we quickly see that it's an ironic song of victory because in verse 14, we see nothing of the sort. The poem takes a quick ironic turn in that we're told of this great champion in verse 13, 
But what is described in verse 14 doesn't look like a great champion, but looks like someone who has suffered great defeat. And the picture that we see in verse 14 is that the servant wasn't defeated by a slim margin, right? It's not as if he just barely lost by the skin of his teeth. No, this was a decisive blowout because he's been defeated so terribly that it has caused extreme, unrecognizable disfigurement. He has been so marred and so mangled and so beaten and so defeated that he doesn't even look human anymore. He is unrecognizable. If you saw him, you wouldn't think he was human. And the sight of him to the witness of the scene is just repulsive. They are so astonished. The disfigurement of the servant is utterly shocking. And so behold, the great champion who is deformed beyond the point of human recognition. We read that and say, what? How on earth does any of that make sense? And we receive a hint of clarity here in verse 15. It's a song of victory, which takes an ironic turn, but with a purpose. You see, the image of the mutilated servant is linked with the champion who is high and lifted up. It's the same person. And as a result, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That right there is what we would call priestly, sacrificial purification language. We'll we'll get into that more later in the series, but all we need to know right now is that somehow, some way, by the means of the servant's own injury and abuse, he is cleansing the nations. He is purifying the nations. And this is such a bizarre thing that the highest of men, the kings of such nations, are absolutely dumbstruck by this. It doesn't make any sense to them to the point that they shut their mouths because of him. The the image of the broken champion is so foreign to them, so contradictory to everything that they have ever known or everything that they have ever seen or everything that they have ever heard that they are actually speechless that there are no human words that can adequately explain in their limited understanding what they see play out. Because here they have this champion, broken, but as a result has purified the nations. They don't get it. They don't understand. And many even today still don't get it. Because God's way of doing things doesn't make sense to human beings whose minds are tainted by a human perspective, which is why we need to change our perspective. We need to look at the servant differently. And this is why we need divine revelation. We need God himself to lift the veil from from our faces so that we can view the servant from a different vantage point because the world sees the servant a certain way. 
And that's described in the first three verses of uh, chapter 53 and is why God poses the two questions in in verse 1 of of 53. Uh, Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Basically, God's saying, who has, who has recognized? Who has recognized him? You won't recognize him apart from some sort of revelation. He, he goes on in verse 2 and 3 to, to explain why. There's actually three reasons why you don't recognize this champion for who he is. The first reason is that he comes uh, into the picture in a natural, humble, modest way. Right? He didn't burst onto the scene and dominate the room by his very presence as some are in the habit of doing. No, he came into this world in quiet obscurity as a child, as a baby, naturally born into a family. He's part of a family tree. And this is the picture that we get here in verse 2, is that he is like a plant that grows slowly from the dry ground by natural means. It's, it's a, he comes from humble beginnings in a natural way. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This really speaks to Jesus' humanity. And it actually should draw our attention. Um, it makes us think of an earlier passage in Isaiah chapter 11 where the messianic figure is actually described very similarly to as a shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you're unfamiliar with who Jesse is in the middle of Isaiah, Jesse was an ancestor of Jesus and the, the father of one of the most prominent kings of Israel, King David. Um, and even in the story about how God chose David to be king, it fits nicely here in Isaiah 53. Right, God sent a prophet by the name of Samuel to Jesse in order to select and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the king of Israel. And God gave Samuel very specific instructions when choosing which son of Jesse was to be king. God instructs Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Once again, different perspective, different vantage points. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, in that instance, God wanted to ensure that the king of Israel was not chosen based on what he looked like, even though that's how the world would pick a king at that time. In the same way, God's servant, this future exalted king, this exalted one, this one that will be lifted up and praised was not in place based on his appearance. And that's the second reason why many don't recognize this champion. Not only would you not recognize him because you missed him because he was born into a family naturally in quiet obscurity, but you're not going to recognize him, right? Because, Because his appearance wasn't much to write home about. And if you, at the time of Isaiah's prophecies, if there was a king that walked into the room, you would know it. You would know it based on how he looked. You would know it based on how he was dressed. You would know it by his appearance alone. Yet verse two describes this champion servant as one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was hideously ugly, as some may have assumed. What this verse is trying to communicate, the emphasis here in this verse, is that Jesus' appearance was plain, that he was ordinary in appearance, that there was nothing special in how he looked. In our day, he could walk into this room and there would be nothing very impressive about him that would stick out according to his outward appearance. There would be no indication outwardly that he was a person of importance. No, no one might wonder uh, who, who this guy is based on his appearance. Now we read that and you say, what, what's the big deal? Why does this matter? Why does scripture make it a point to describe Jesus as plain and ordinary in how he looked? It's because God is the God of the ordinary. God works in the ordinary. God works through the ordinary. Because the majority of humanity is ordinary. You see, one of the many reasons that Jesus came as a human was so that he may identify with us. And what better way to identify with us than to look like us, to come as an ordinary, run-of-the-mill looking guy. Almost nine years ago, when I applied for the youth pastor position here at FAC, um, our former pastor, Mark, had uh, reached out to my former youth pastor because I had um, listed him as a reference. And apparently the story goes that my youth pastor told Mark that if you want the coolest, best dressed, most good looking youth pastor out there, Mike is not your guy. Now, I have no problem admitting that I am an average, mediocre-looking guy, but Jesus was ordinary in appearance, and I can relate to ordinary. Right? I can't relate to, 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 to the majesty, uh, to, to the ones that walk in the room and look uh, well-dressed and fantastic, beautiful people. I can't relate to that, but I can relate to ordinary. You see, this servant could have come adorned in royal garb with a beautiful appearance, yet he deliberately chose not to. And as a result, many overlooked him and they ignored him. And even worse than that, many have despised and rejected him is what we're told in verse three. That's the third and final reason why people don't recognize him for who he is because he was despised and rejected by men. In verse three, we see actually a transition of response to the servant. We move from a position of ignorance to that of, re to, to that of rejection. What started off as a passive unawareness of the servant actually progresses to uh, an, an outright act of aggression and hostility toward him, right? Most champions have a huge following and they have a huge fan club, but this servant did not, right? You would never know he was a champion based on how people treated him. And we read that he was a man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief as a result. 
Jesus knew pain. And Jesus knew grief. Jesus knew weakness. And not just on the cross, but he experienced hardship and frustrations throughout his entire life. The disappointments, the exhaustions, the constant harassment from his enemies, the continuous demands of the crowd, the mocking, the jeering, the threats, the loneliness. Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man of perpetual pain. Verse three is very specific in that it says he was acquainted with grief. To be acquainted with something is to know it. He, he knew grief, right? It's, it's one thing to know of grief or know about grief as if you've heard it secondhand or if you've read it in a book, but it's a completely different experience to say that he knows grief, right? If we're honest with ourselves in many regards, I may know about your grief as you tell it to me. I may know of your grief, but I don't know your grief because you are experiencing grief in ways that I never have. I don't know what you're going through and you don't know what I am going through. I can't relate to much of your pain and you can't relate to much of mine in many regards. But Jesus, the man of sorrows, one who is acquainted with grief, he can, he knows. Those tears that have fallen from your eyes have fallen from his eyes. That pain you have felt, he feels. That weakness you experience in humanity, he has experienced. You see, Jesus not only relates to us as an ordinary looking human being, but he also relates to us in our pain. And this means that there is no pain that uh, there is no pain that you cannot cast at the foot of the cross. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, not a single pain that you could bring to Jesus where he would say, well, I'm sorry, but I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to carry that burden because I don't know what you're going through. No, he experienced it all, which means He can carry it all. And so how reassuring and comforting to know that while I do indeed walk through, not around, but through the valley of the shadow of death, I am not walking alone, that I have a guide. I have a guide who is completely familiar with the treacherous terrain of the valley because he has experienced the valley to its full extent. He's walked it before. And so look to him and follow him because he knows the way. Unfortunately for many, this man of sorrows has the opposite effect according to verse three. The passage finishes by stating that as a man of sorrows, He was as one from whom men hide their faces. 
He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was such a man of sorrows that people actually have this natural desire to look away, to hide their faces from them. They don't want to see him. And they look away because it's uncomfortable. Right, right. It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant to come face to face with pain and suffering and weakness. It's unsettling to be confronted with our own humanity and our own mortality. That's why many people don't like going to hospitals because it reminds them of death. That's why many people don't like funerals because it reminds them of death. It's a painful reminder that we have a problem and that problem is death. That someday I will be the one in that box and that terrifies me. And so I will will cope with my own mortality by by avoiding it altogether, by just turning a blind eye to it, by by looking away. I'm just going to look away I'm going to ignore the problem and act and pretend that the problem doesn't exist. But the problem does exist. And something has to be done about death. And the wonderful thing is that something has been done about death. What we will find in the coming weeks in this song of the suffering servant is that in his suffering was the very solution to our problem of death that by submitting to death and subsequently overcoming death, we too can overcome death if we look to Jesus and put our faith and trust in him. And so no matter how comfortable it may be and unsettling and agitating it might be in your life, do not look away from the man of sorrow. Turn to him, look to him, and see how he has overcome. Would you pray with me? And Lord, I would ask that if there be anybody in this room this morning who um, has avoided you, uh, has not looked to you, that you would show them the life that's in Christ. And Lord, that it was by his suffering and by his death for them that he provides an avenue to life, Lord. And that while we experience physical death, those who trust Jesus will not experience a spiritual death that is far worse and far more painful than any physical death. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we will experience physical death, those who are in Christ will be resurrected to life. That death as the final enemy has not won that we worship a man in Christ, the servant who is victorious and triumphant. And for that, we give you all the glory. And that's in your holy name I pray. Amen.